friends. Welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forrest. I'm Mr. Forrest. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, this week, I have a conversation with Jeremy Narby. Jeremy is someone that came onto my radar, you know, probably uh, 10 plus years ago. I remember he had a book called The Cosmic Serpent that was making the waves, uh, well, at least in my life back in that time when I first was introduced to ayahuasca around 2008. He's a Canadian anthropologist and author. It says on his Wikipedia that he examines shamanism and molecular biology and shaman's knowledge of botanics and biology through the use of entheogens across many cultures. Well, he's got a new book out right now that's called Plant Teachers with his co-author Raphael Chinchari Pizuri, I believe is the pronunciation, and its subtitle is Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge. So it takes a deep dive into both ayahuasca and tobacco. It's a relatively short book, so it's it's um, you know it's not a very long read if you want to get into this subject matter. But he's got a lot of knowledge to share on the subject, and I was happy to be able to ask him some questions and kind of get into this. So I'm I'm confident you're really going to enjoy uh, us being able to pick Jeremy's brain and check out his book if you're so inclined. What else is going on? Yesterday I spent the day with uh, the Glitch Mob. My friends Justin, Josh, and Ed, who are here in town, working in the studio, and they're making working on a new record. But you know, it's their first time out here to the southern Utah landscape. And luckily, we took the entire day yesterday to go see a lot of the sites. And it was everything from canyons to slots to uh, ruins to aspen trees up on the mountain to wonderful dinners. And it was, I mean, there's nothing better than seeing people who are seeing this landscape for the first time with those virgin eyes and it helps me see it that way and we had a blast they're just really wonderful guys so thanks mob of glitch for hanging out and i'm looking forward to doing more we did a little uh little jam in one of the canyons and it's funny like a couple days ago I was walking out of my place and i was just looked at the picture of maharaji and he kind of said to me in my head hey, take that bag of percussion instruments that's in that bag. And I'm thinking, why in the world would I need that bag? That seems weird. But I said, all right. So I took the bag and it didn't, it wasn't needed that day or the next day. But on the third day, we pull up to that canyon and I thought to myself, oh, the bag of percussion, sweet. Let's bring that in, lay it all out. We can all like grab things and make some beautiful sound and noise and record it here here in the canyon. Thank you, Maharaji. I always love it when that happens. Huh. Uh, otherwise, we're just here in southern Utah. It's a beautiful fall, and we're still recuperating from that time on the road and Tree Fort Fest and the East Forest Retreat down here. I'm rehearsing for an event that we're doing on October 24th in Los Angeles. We'll be doing it's the 50th anniversary of the Be Here Now book, and I'll be out there performing at Wisdom in L.A., with some other folks, including Superposition and Krishna Das. Um, I mean, there's speakers and all sorts of wonderful things happening. If you're interested in coming and you're in the area, uh, I do have a ticket link through my page at eastforest.org. Hit the tour tab and you should see more about that. Uh, I also learned that the uh, retreat at Esalen, November 12th through 16th, I believe is sold out. It may be a wait list if people drop out if you'd like to join, but we will be looking for more opportunities to do retreats and there's more concerts to be announced soon. So always get on the newsletter over at eastforest.org and we will let you know about what's what. And a special thank you to all of our council members on Patreon who support this podcast and the East Forest Project in general. See if it's right for you. Patreon.com slash eastforest. Um, we shared last week some extra content of Justin Wren and I and Rada and and John Hopkins and Mark and we all got in the ice bath in the back of uh, in the back of Justin Wren's house with Amy and you get to hear the audio of that crazy experience. But I try to share extras from the podcast, unreleased music, advanced listens to music, and of course we have our monthly Zoom council if you want to join on that level where we have a gathering every month in real time where I do music and we sort of witness one another and try to go deeper. 
So that's always been a beautiful experience. We had a couple people from the council show up at the retreat here in southern Utah. That was awesome to get FaceTime with people you see on Zoom and just get an even richer experience. Um, That's pretty much it for now. We don't have to get into much else, you know, but uh, I want to thank you all for the support, for listening to the podcast, for subscribing, for reviewing and sharing it. You can always say hi at info at eastforest.org or over on the socials and the medias. But for now, let's get into this wonderful conversation with our new friend, Jeremy Narby. Jeremy Narby, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's um, excited to meet you. Your name popped up very early in my own my own sort of process of I don't know. I hate to use the word awakening, but sort of my process of learning more about myself and the spiritual elements of my life. Probably back in two thousand eight. When your 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 other book, uh, The Cosmic Serpent. What year did that come out? Came out in '98 in uh, New York. Man, uh, you were way ahead of your time. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have a new book, uh, Plant Teachers, that came across my radar, and so it was a good excuse for us to connect. And I have uh, a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about, but maybe first, for those who aren't as initiated into into your work, you could just give us a little bit of background about kind of, you know, how you got into this work so early and just a little bit about uh, who you are. Yeah. um, Let's see. uh, I was born in uh, Montreal uh, 61 years ago. And then uh, when I was 10, my parents moved to Switzerland. So I was all, plus we were like uh, English speaking Quebecers. So uh, I I was born on a cultural frontier. Um, and then we moved to another bilingual town in, uh, Switzerland. So I've always been, uh, I've grown up in places where people speak different languages and so on. And I think that kind of predisposes one to ask oneself questions about, uh, why people have different cultures and, and so on. Um, so I ended up becoming an anthropologist, which is, that's what anthropologists study and, I was interested in uh, differences between rich and poor more than anything else. It was kind of like Mm -hmm. a political focus on justice Mm -hmm. in the world. And uh, a professor at university in anthropology suggested that I look into indigenous people because these were people who lived in out-of-the-way places and uh, that somehow were the the Achilles heel of any kind of development uh, uh, scheme. it could be in a rainforest or in the Arctic or in the Australian desert. These indigenous people lived in these vast uh, places of natural resources, but didn't use them in ways that experts felt were rational. And so the idea was that if you studied the situation of indigenous people, you could find a, a place where there was friction in, in what were programs to bring about development. Um, so it was for those theoretical reasons that I became interested in the indigenous people of the Amazon I, at, that, at that point mm. as a 23, 24-year-old anthropologist in the 1980s. I was uh, not attracted to the rainforest and the mosquitoes. This, this answer is getting kind of long already. But, no, this is great. This is really helping me out understand like – Because it, it, it's, it, it's a bit of a long story, uh, but I'll, I'll try to keep it nice and short. Um, yes. So for theoretical reasons, and also when you're a young anthropologist, it's kind of like when you're studying to become a medical doctor, uh, you go and do your internship in the place where it's difficult, you know, like the emergency room or something. (laughs) Um, not because you want to, but that's going to steal you and make you a real, you know, doctor. So in other words, if you're not attracted to it, it must be the place to go. So, that's how I showed up in the Peruvian Amazon. And I was expecting that the indigenous people that I was going to live with and uh, study would be uh, uh, different. And, you know, Indians in the rainforest with bare feet and 
machetes maybe and arrows and face paint and and all that was true um and at the same time what soon became apparent was that well first of all th- this forest was unlike anything i'd ever seen the the diversity of plants left swiss forest canadian forest american forest in the dust in terms of uh the diversity also the size i mean the redwoods notwithstanding um so, uh, and these people had impressive encyclopedic knowledge about these plants. I mean, you, you could go walking in the forest with different individuals and they'd have names in their language for just about every species of plant and, mm. and described uses to uh, about half of them. Um, so that was the, the first, uh, there have been a series of things that have got me to look at all this rather differently. I mean, that was like the first lesson. And these people have more botanical knowledge than scientists in the sense that there are simply more names given to Amazonian plants in indigenous languages than in Latin given by science. You know, that they really do have bona fide knowledge that is on the same footing as our own, if not superior to it, at least in that domain. That's Um, wild. I mean, I just want to ask you, do you, I mean, in that way, do you think there's a promise for plants still to come in a way of like, particularly the Amazon, uh, for like things that have still yet to have been discovered or uh, Well, understood? you know, that, that's a pretty speculative question because um, indigenous people have been living there for a long time, uh, uh, studying the plants. And I think that uh, a good part of what is known about plants is already in the public domain, as it were. And this is not to say that there aren't plants that, uh, that you know, still might uh, be discovered and have properties that are unknown. I think plants are very uh, powerful organisms. I mean, the simplest plants can contain complex molecules that no other plant contains. And, you know, clearly uh, the plants of the Amazon warrant more research. But it, it, if we're going to be discovering uh, blockbusters that haven't been discovered by indigenous people yet. Um, who knows? Uh, that's an open question. In any case, here were these Amazon, these Ashaninka people. I was living in the, within the Peruvian Amazon. They had this remarkable knowledge about plants, but when I would ask them how they got their knowledge, they said they pointed to plants like ayahuasca, plants like tobacco, precisely plants these plants are teachers to us right and so how do we know what we know well we ingest these plants and then we see images and get information about other plants that's how we know so that was a an enigma that was plopped into my lap as a young anthropologist i wanted to demonstrate the contrary i wanted to show that indigenous people used the rainforest rationally and therefore <laughs> deserve the right to own their lands. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to show that they used it productively and without destroying it, unlike any other actors in the Amazon. And that if we were really interested in developing the Amazon in a sustainable way, it was necessary to work with indigenous people and respect their land rights. So that that's what I was up to. Um, so this this um, hallucinogenic source of knowledge that they plopped in my lap was um, uh, uh, burdensome, cumbersome. I mean, it wasn't, and yet it was still interesting. I, I'd previously tried LSD. I mean, LSD is a Swiss molecule, and I grew up in Switzerland. I'd tried psilocybin mushrooms before. I mean, I, I had a dabbling experience as a as a college kid in in psychedelics in the early 1980s i'd even spend a month with humphrey osmond in alabama he's the english psychiatrist who coined the term psychedelic uh this was three or four years before going to the amazon so i I was fairly well versed for your average westerner in um hallucinogens at least i thought i was when i showed up I also knew that it wasn't by studying the hallucinogens that I was going to advance my anthropological career. Um, 
so I had a kind of a personal interest in this. So here were these uh, actually kind of mind-blowing people. I mean, they were barefoot. They did p- put paint on their face, you know, vegetal uh, uh, colors on their face. But they had remarkable knowledge about their environment, and they pointed to these powerful hallucinogenic plants. Uh, ayahuasca is a powerful plant mixture from the Amazon. Tobacco also comes from South America. It's a very powerful plant when it's... It's the uh, the strong, dark Amazonian tobacco. So I was curious uh, as a kind of um, uh, hobby, or um, I didn't really consider it as part of my official research. It was more like, a, okay, Friday night, next Friday night, this, this young ayahuasquero told me, look, if you want to understand how we know what we know about plants, you have to drink ayahuasca, uh, Brother Jeremy. And... Mm-hmm. Um, it's the television of the forest. You'll see images hmm. and learn things. That's okay. Next Friday night, bring it over and uh, let's let's look into it. Anyway, this is becoming a very long answer to your question, um, but that's well, how it's a, it's of, a big question. It's a big I, question. That's, that's so. how I fell into the the cauldron, as it were. Well, so the, well, the book centers around ayahuasca and tobacco, and. Uh, that makes uh, a fair bit of sense to me uh, over my experiences over the last 13 years. And I, I think I spent a little time in the Amazon and did a dieta, 10-day dieta outside of Terrapoto with um, uh, quite an older uh, ayahuasquero and vegetalista. And that was a valuable experience just to kind of be uh, on the ground there and just be way out there in a very, very traditional sense. And I was interested in experiencing what it would be like, because it was probably, that's what, what it had been like. Like I, I didn't want all the frills, which wasn't so fun, but I learned a lot. And tobacco was very present, that those big uh, stalks of sort of that jungle tobacco you could buy in the market. I remember bringing that as a gift. I was told to get to bring that and mapacho and seeing how that is used. And I remember being told, someone said like, if you had a desert island plant, if you could take one plant with you, what would it be as a teacher and an ally? And they said tobacco. And I think that's surprising to a lot of people in the West. And uh, for myself, um, I had been sort of unconsciously using uh, marijuana and mixed with tobacco. It kind of it got a hold on me one year in my life early on. And I had a particular accident on a bicycle where I horribly broke my arm. And in, in, while it happened partially because I was smoking while I was riding. And I got that rush and long story short, I made a decision when that happened. I remember lying on the ground in horrific pain and I instantly said, you know, I will never again smoke tobacco in this way. And as someone who leads uh, ceremonies with psilocybin, the only time I work with tobacco is in the ceremony as needed, most mostly to clear the space and, and as, as a protector. That's it. And that's stayed to this day because I, something in here, it was speaking to me in a way of understanding the power of this plant. And I, I just did that out of respect for what I've heard and what I've learned. I'm like, I don't need to, you know, think I have some understanding of tobacco. Like, oh, I can have it both ways. My cake and eat it too. So let's talk a little bit about tobacco first and why that's viewed as such a, a powerful plant. And also then why it, it's so uh, has such a grip on our world in this addictive way. You know, it seems to have these different, it's, a, it's an interesting, like, I know in the book, it talks about the malice of, of tobacco, which I thought was a really interesting word. So uh, tell, tell me what, what that brings up for you. Let's talk about tobacco. Okay. Um, yeah, th- this is another one of these uh, questions. It looks um, simple, but... Um, no, I, no, I, it's I deep. Think the, the only way to answer it is to kind of unpack it. Um, yeah. And so... Um, I think with tobacco, it's uh, important to kind of rewind the the tape of time, and um, because um, and I'll say uh, indigenous Amazonians on the one hand, and I'll say white people on the other, as a kind of telegraphic code to go faster with the story. Um, you know, the European, the white people from Europe who came over as of uh, fifteen hundred to the Americas and then became North Americans and so on. Um, They didn't know tobacco. They didn't have tobacco. They didn't smoke 
the um, they didn't even have a verb for to smoke when they saw uh, um, the, the first uh, Columbus and his his men when they saw uh, people in the Caribbean smoking tobacco. Wow! They they said they drink the smoke because they they, they didn't have the concept of to smoke. Um, well. Uh, the tobacco that uh, uh, is smoked in the world, uh, Nicotiana tobaccum and also Nicotiana rustica, these two uh, species of tobacco, because there are like 67 or 76 species in all of in the Nicotiana family, but the, the two that are most smoked or commonly smoked in the world come from South America. They're indigenous to the area around Tarapoto, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that's where they grew naturally, and that's where the people first domesticated them and started cultivating them, no doubt, thousands of years ago. And um, then tobacco, has, tobacco travels very easily with people. In other words, once people start working with tobacco, then they, they value the plant and transmit it, and then it, it's fairly easy to... To cultivate, so uh, tobacco spread across indigenous um, the indigenous indigenous Americas. It's not just that Amazonians are the only ones to, to smoke, but it's true that the uh, the plant itself comes from there. They have the deepest experience using it, and for them, and like Nicotiana rustica, which grows in the Amazon, it has like twenty percent nicotine compared to. One percent in the Virginia blonde tobacco. Yeah. It's very strong. Yeah, it's very strong. Yeah. So they, it, and in fact, it's so strong that it's uh, a kind of hallucinogen. I mean, people do not uh, usually classify tobacco in that way, but people who are familiar with the uh, strength of Amazonian dark Amazonian shamanic tobacco. Uh, recognize that it has hallucinogenic uh, properties. I mean, you know, you see images, you have scenarios come through your mind, you have your body has all these strange impressions. It can be a very, uh, very powerful experience. Um, well, uh, and so then it, it, it is also uh, a painkiller, an anal- analgesic. I mean, you take fresh tobacco leaves and you put them on wounds and it reduces the pain. And tobacco is used uh, as the number one medicinal plant in indigenous Amazonia. People uh, apply it, they chew it, they, uh, they, blow, they smoke it and blow the smoke on, on people who are ill, um, it, it before being a visionary and shamanic plant, it is a, uh, a medicinal plant. And then it is also the number one shamanic plant. In other words, the plant that is used most often. And for example, sh- uh, tobacco is often used with other teacher plants like ayahuasca, for example. It's, right. it, it's, it's the ultimate combo plant. I mean, you, even you were smoking cannabis and tobacco. Tobacco lends itself to being used with other psychoactive plants uh, because it modulates the experience. And with psilocybin as well, I mean, tobacco functions as a kind of MAO inhibitor as well. And shamans commonly use tobacco to, to modulate their experience with hallucinogenic plants. And this means that Tobacco is used uh, for you always use tobacco with ayahuasca, but you don't always use ayahuasca with tobacco. In other words, so it, it ends up that t- tobacco gets used more frequently than any plant for shamanic reasons and also for uh, medicinal reasons. So it's the number one plant, and it's a, a plant teacher. It's re- regarded as a powerful entity and. By uh, setting up an alliance with this plant, you can learn things, you can get some kind of power, but it does have that two-faced nature of most plant teachers, according to, for example, my co-author, Rafael Chanchari, who is an Amazonian expert on these subjects. He says, these plant teachers, they all have two souls, two faces, uh, medicine and malice. And it's true in the Amazonian view of the world. There, they they make less sort of absolute separations between good and evil, medicine and malice, and 
So these entities, like the, the, the powerful entity that is tobacco, can be used to harm people, can be used to heal people. Um, it, it's precisely because power itself is, is double-edged. Um, knowledge is double-edged. Um, if we just compare the plant, uh, a good Western metaphor is like a power tool. Uh, in, indigenous Amazonians compare the plant to a person. I'll be a good Westerner and compare it to an object. I'll say, okay, the plant is like a power tool. Um, where it's like a power tool is like if you think of a chainsaw, you can use a chainsaw to do uh, a good work. You can also use it to do bad work. Um, and this, so you have to learn how to master it. And, and that's the whole thing is that you can quickly go wrong with a, with a chainsaw if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and that's how it is with these powerful plants. Um, they can quickly mislead you. Um, and so, um, so there it is. The master, master plants, you never master master plants. They may master you, and that's what you want to avoid. And you avoid that by uh, confining them in space and time. You, you don't use them all the time. You use them only at certain moments with certain purposes. You prepare yourself. If you're going to work with these plants, you have to take it seriously. Otherwise, it, it gets tricky fast. That's but but the, is, is, excuse me, I'm just curious, is there, isn't there an interesting difference between ayahuasca and tobacco and that the physical addictive properties of nicotine? Like, yeah, well, it, it mentions talking like smoking oh, tobacco uh, during the day. I'll, right? I'll, get, I'll get to that. Uh, yeah, I'll okay. get to the addictive uh, part about tobacco because um, it, it's coming right up. Great. Um, when this powerful plant was um, taken out of the indigenous world and brought into uh, the white man world, in Virginia, for example, and they started making this uh, uh, weakened version, uh, blonde tobacco, much less nicotine, uh, because in the culture of these uh, white European originally people, the, the, uh, having your head spin in a kind of hallucinatory way was not part of their culture. They didn't like that part. The, the shamanic tobacco was too strong. So they selected for weaker tobacco. And then there was a pleasure. It became a pleasurable experience. And in the 20th century, it became industrial cigarettes. And we're going to get to addiction very quickly here. Industrial cigarettes, by the admission of the uh, the people who owned the who owned the tobacco uh, companies, are nicotine delivery devices. They're constructed like that. Uh, so you take this weakened form of this powerful plant. They lace it with hundreds of chemicals, which, when burned, turn into dangerous substances. Um, and they calibrate it just so that you get just enough nicotine to tickle the neurons, but not actually to deliver. There's never a, f a, a real delivery. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like a gear when you, when you have a, a motorcycle goes, am, bam, 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 and you never put the gear in, bam, you never actually, it's just enough to, to get the, the motor going, beam, 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 beam. Okay, that's right. So you've tickled your neurons. And then 25 minutes later, hmm, you want to fire up another one. And that's, what they want, they calibrate the nicotine and the taste experience so that you come back to it as quickly as possible. They turn a powerful plant into a watered-down plant that teaches you nothing, and they turn it into an addiction because at that level, and they turn it into an experience, uh, if you actually get a full nicotine delivery, you don't want to have another one anytime soon. If you have a, a powerful, uh, a, a big dose of nicotine-rich, dark shamanic tobacco one evening during one of these sessions, you don't want to fire up an, a cigarette the next morning or the next afternoon. Um, you may smoke some mapacho the next day to get back into that uh, space. I'm not saying that people don't do that. But uh, the addiction, I'm quite sure, lies in the way of consuming this, this plant. Uh, 
in in a weakened and adulterated form. So, and then, so that begs the question: Do uh, tobacco shamans in the Amazon show addiction to nicotine? Mm. I would say mainly no. Uh, hanging around with Westerners who who have that kind of addictive approach to tobacco and who will fire up their tobacco. Uh, in the late morning or in the early afternoon, there are perhaps some South American uh, uh, ayahuasquero tabaqueros who get into that, but mainly no. Just like you and your your psilocybin uh, use of tobacco, most tabaqueros are using tobacco when they're doing serious tobacco shaman business. But not what about not vaping? During- what about like in high-end vaping situations where people claim to have just a very pure delivery of nicotine and they're like, they're, they're using nicotine as a tool throughout the day? What are your opinions on that? Well, you know, that's interesting because um, I didn't know that there were people who were vaping tobacco and working with it uh, in that way. Um, I mean, the first thing that I'd say about that is that, that it does depend on the tobacco. Um, sure. You know. Uh, and I can I can say what my co-author Rafael Chanchari because I asked him you know do you, do you have any advice for uh, uh, Westerners who smoke tobacco you know uh, in the form of cigarettes but you know what be your advice and he said well look the first thing is you you want to smoke pure tobacco so and it can even be the weaker kind it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, strong but at least it should be pure so you know, just tobacco, not mixed with chemicals. And then in his view, it's important to limit this to doing it in the evenings um, and doing it when you're not doing something else, like, for example, riding a bicycle. Um, uh, (laughs) But, you know, but he said, uh, you know, don't smoke whilst you're watching television. Television is another activity. It's something that enchants you. It takes your mind. If you're going to smoke, uh, smoke in a way where you concentrate on the fact that you are smoking, you are interacting with a powerful plant, and at this point, you're listening to the plant. Or like having it's it's like if if you and I are going to have a conversation, then I'm going to be attentive to you and to what you're saying, and I'm not going to be having a conversation with somebody else. It's and so that's how to and so you know somebody who is vaping tobacco throughout the day um i first there's a health problem with uh with vaping and we kind of put that in the uh appendix of appendix of the yeah but uh like vaporizing i think it would be possible to vaporize uh pure tobacco but the point it would not be to do it throughout the day um, but to do it in a way where you do it deliberately, um, kind of like a prayer or a meditation. I mean, you know, I'm not a religious person, just to be clear, but when you think of, like, when I think of Muslims who pray five times a day, you know, it's quite a rigmarole. Uh, you've got to go and you interrupt your activities and you get down and you do the thing. And blah, blah. Praying five times a day is, is it's, uh, it's not a full-time job, but I mean, it, it, you know, it really plays a, a, it takes up a lot of time in people's life. S- smoking tobacco seriously five times a day um, really is something similar to that. I mean, if you really are going to take, I don't know, 10 minutes, five, five to 10 minutes where you go to a place where there's nobody else except some maybe other smokers so that you don't disturb them and then concentrate on the fact that it's you and the tobacco. Um, you know, if people want to do that five times a day whilst they're writing their things or so on, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if uh, I, it's not up to me to say whether they should do it three or five times a day or only three sure. times a week or, or whatever. I think the most important thing is that um, each time the you, you, that you uh, vaporize the plant or smoke it or, you know, however you uh, ingest the plant, um, do it with intention, concentration, focus, humility, and uh, a knowledge of what you're doing. And, and what you're doing is interacting with a powerful plant. Um, 
you know, that, that can be dangerous. It, actually, tobacco, this is one of the differences between tobacco and ayahuasca. I think tobacco is like, it's almost unsafe at any speed. I mean, it really is like a wild horse. It's, it's powerful. It has a deep impact on us. Uh, it's, I think it's easy to get uh, into trouble with tobacco. It's, it's not something that's easy to master. But it clearly inspires many people, and many people are are attracted to it. Um, I happen not to be one. I'm just not a, a tobacco user. I hang out with tobacco users. Um, I occasionally take a hit from tobacco just to confirm that it's really not my thing. Um, but then there's more than a billion, 1.2 billion people in the world who who consume tobacco, mainly in the form of industrial cigarettes. So there's certainly a, a lot of people out there who could gain from um, clarifying, I think, what they're, right. what they're doing. Well, uh, let's switch gears a little bit to ayahuasca. And in some ways, uh, this certainly relates. Uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, maybe it was Chinchari who was saying like, ayahuasca doesn't deceive. Like it, it, it sort of just speaks its truth but there's this delineation between in your experience of ayahuasca truth and hallucination or truth versus projections and i think this is a really important subject and something to get into because a lot of people go into sessions and they have these experiences and they have sometimes sorts of revelations where they're like they kind of think they've figured something out and maybe you know sometimes they have but sometimes Maybe they haven't. And how do people know and tell the difference between that delusion of sorts, between a vision and a projection or hallucination? And how do you talk about the two? Yeah, um, I'd be happy to uh, to answer. But I'm, for some reason, I'm tempted to ask you what your answer to that question is first. <laughs> well, I would say there isn't a clear-cut answer. Um, and... It comes up, it rings true for me right now just because I heard a story last week of someone who is going through a sickness and they asked someone who was going to the jungle, hey, when you're in that space, please ask the ayahuasca for me like what I can do. And the person came back and said, I did ask the ayahuasca. Ayahuasca told me I can heal you. And I'm not saying that's true or not true. But that anytime, anytime someone tells me they have any answer with clarity, sort of like I know, a red light goes off in my mind because anything I've learned is that I have feelings and I never know, no with certainty. It's sort of, or it's right, even right. this is mythic. It's right. like, you know, with a capital K, but you don't know with a little K. Like my mind wants to grab on and say, I figured it out, but I know <laughs> it's the mystery itself. And so, but humans have this wonderful way. I've seen a lot of people who get lost in these spaces and only you can really know inside that truth, but we have a lot of delusion and grandeur and uh, so forth. Yeah. Well, uh, very good. Uh, and um, I agree with, um, with what you say. And I think that what makes ayahuasca particularly uh, tricky um, in, uh, on this question um, is that... Um, it, it does uh, several things that are not necessarily bad. Um, uh, it, it impacts on ego. It can cause ego dissolution like uh, other hallucinogens. It can also cause ego amplification. Uh, the anthropologist Luis Eduardo Luna has said that perhaps the biggest danger of ayahuasca is uh, ego uh, inflation. Wow. Uh, and so... This doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to a, a small minority of people, I don't know, 10, 20%. And then suddenly, you know, they, they think they know more than other people. And, um, and, and, and you know, they, it, and then there is this, <clears throat> sorry, this other aspect. Um, science w would say ayahuasca is a psychedelic. And uh, psychedelics are, um, well, they're amplifiers. Um, and they're also revealers of psyche. It's like they take the lid off and uh, you go deeper into the psyche and stuff that's down there comes out. 
I don't think this explains everything about ayahuasca. I think ayahuasca, uh, that I think the word psychedelic is only part of the story, but it's, it is also part of the story. And so ayahuasca, uh, the experience that you have of ayahuasca depends on who you are. It depends on what's inside your psyche. It's going to amplify stuff that's there. It can amplify your ego. And then, I mean, a, a classic is you, you have beginners who go down there and then they come back and say, yes, ayahuasca told me I'm a great shaman and I've got an eye, I've got a one eye, and so on and so forth. And, yeah. you know, it, it's not that ayahuasca told them that, it's that some part deep down inside themselves that sort of that got amplified and they heard it and they took it to be and it's what they also wanted to hear and, uh, and stuff like that. So ayahuasca is good at making stuff like that come out, uh, come bubbling out. And then, you know, people go down, they go charging down certain alleys because they, th they think they've received a clear message and they can get misled in that way. Um, my co-author, Rafael Chanchari, says, no, ayahuasca doesn't do the misleading. It's people who mislead themselves. Well, I mean, it depends from which perspective um, I think it's still, if you look at the plant as a psychedelic, it's, it's still the plant that's doing the amplifying, doing the psyche revealing, um, you know. So in that sense, yeah, it eventually does. Uh, it, it is generating what ends up being misleading for that person. Um, <clears throat> so Rafael and I don't necessarily agree on that point. He, he lets the plant get off kind of uh, lightly. At the same time, where I think he's right, is that it really does depend on the people and uh, that people have to learn the difference between what they're carrying around inside them and, and then that it comes out as a kind of projection uh, uh, during the experience. And then what is really what Raphael calls a true vision, where you're getting information that is independent to a certain extent of what you've been carrying around in your psyche and that he calls true vision. And that... Finally, I mean, he, he has the answer of an old fox. Uh, so how do you tell the difference? Well, it takes time. And that's, that's the foxy answer because, you know, it, it just means you have to keep at it for years that actually during the first years that you start learning from a plant, it's important not to consider this as true vision because you haven't let, yet learned to determine whether it's true vision or projection. In other words, people who are at the beginning of the ayahuasca learning curve really gain from being humble and, and as you say, embracing a, a position where you don't have certitudes. You know, maybe the plant told me that, or maybe I was suggesting it to myself. Um, maybe this was just a possible scenario. You know, n not immediately turning your visions into certitudes with capital C. In fact, avoiding certitudes, le learning to live with uh, mystery, mm -hmm. you know, that, that so yes, I, I, you can work with ayahuasca, it can certainly increase your sense of mystery, there's all kinds of mystery in the world. Um, you know, so uh, it's, it's like learning to, to ride a, a wild horse or something, it, it's something that does take time, and it's important not to just go you know, charging down the first avenues and, and reaching uh, uh, sweeping conclusions uh, filled with certitude. Is that what Chinchari meant when he's talking about learning source sorcery? Like some people, it's like almost like an avenue, you're going one way with it versus another way with it. I wasn't quite sure what he meant. You take um, somebody who is um, a power hungry. Um, yeah. Uh, and kind of, you know, centered on themselves and so on. And then you give ayahuasca to this person. Um, it's not going to make them any better. It's going to ex exacerbate the problem. Um, so it, it really does. Uh, and once you get, once you start using ayahuasca for your own power uh, to have influence over people, um, yeah, I think that is the beginning of the of what they call sorcery in the Amazon. But then that too is uh, a whole conceptual thicket. Um, 
I, I think uh, probably the most pertinent thing that I saw uh, recently on sorcery uh, were these two uh, uh, French anthropologists who, who wrote that in uh, a small-scale egalitarian society like an indigenous Amazonian society, sorcery is uh, a frame of interpretation that makes sense and that works. In the uh, hyper-individualized world where community has somehow disappeared, in the world that we now live in of just hundreds of millions of individuals who are trying to move forward with their own personal agendas, um, the, uh, the, the, the frame of interpretation that makes most sense is what is called psychology. So this means if you're trying to make sense of power games among many different individuals, psychology is a pretty good frame for starting to think about it. If you're in an Amazonian society and people are related to each other, everybody knows each other and it's a small-scale place, yes, their way of describing the power games among them, uh, which, which is with sorcery, is uh, a way of uh, understanding their relations that makes sense, at least to them. And once you get used to it, you can start to see its logic. Um, so if that's true... It means that, um, yeah, when individuals from the Western world uh, do their personal development, uh, work on themselves and try to know more and, and get more personal power, depending on how they do it, it's not necessarily sorcery because we're not in the world of sorcery, but it, it can, I think, be looked at through, through the lens of psychology and and when you look at it through the lens of psychology, what you see is that some people, their egos get amplified, they become, uh, uh, they just get worse, they become narcissistic, uh, they become messianic, they start, you know, that you can get into very strange mm. trips. And uh, I think there are quite a few people who, who, who have done that. And, you know, this is, uh, if you look at, um, regrettable power games among ayahuasqueros. And you think, you look at the indigenous and mestizo South American ayahuasqueros, there's no lack of power games and abuse and abuse of female customers and all kinds of problems. Um, and, and also sorcery wars between shamans. I mean, the, the anthropological literature is filled with assault sorcery that... At least fifty percent of the ayahuasca world is is, is not this light filled, healing filled uh, scene. Um, well, likewise, if you look at uh, um, North American and European ayahuasqueros, um, there's a lot of power games going on. There's abuse that's going on as well. Um, it not not everybody. And I, this hasn't really been studied, so I, I don't have the percentages. Um, but uh, it's it's clear that um, when you when you dabble with powerful plants like ayahuasca and try to lead a, a life in the industrial world at the same time, um, it can get complicated. That's Quit. that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it can get complicated. Um, you know, I really wanted to ask you about uh, some uh, music and the role of music, uh, Icaros, the healing songs that uh, he's talked about. It's one of the things you can learn from ayahuasca. And myself as a musician, this is something I'm interested in and talk about a lot. Um, what do you feel is the role of music in the psychedelic landscape? Uh, let's just start there. Um, okay, well, uh, how about uh, in the ayahuasca landscape, and then we can move on yes, to the psychedelic yes. landscape. Let's just stick with ayahuasca for now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a, an anthropologist who's written uh, very well on this subject. His name is Peter Gao. That's G-O-W. The book is called An Amazonian Myth and Its History. It may sound a little bit uh, academic, but still. This guy spent time living with the Piro people, uh, kind of just next door from the Ashaninka people where uh, I, I was living with. And 
this is what he says, and it, to, to me it's the, the best kind of summary of, of what's going on. People, in, in Amazonian people who take ayahuasca say that in their ayahuasca visions, they perceive uh, entities that are common to all life forms that they call essences or mothers or fathers, so like the mother of ayahuasca. So each species has an entity like this. And if you pay attention in your vision to these entities, you um, notice that they give off a vibration or a melody. And um, that the job of the shaman is to uh, sing along with these entities and to learn their melodies. And these melodies are the essence of these beings. And so that you can, if you can uh, remember the melody and then sing it later, you can, you can call them. They're saying that the essences that animate life forms themselves have an essence, which is a melody. Do it again. The essence of the essence of living organisms is a melody. It's beautiful. A bunch yeah. of melodies. And that what these melodies are, they are, they are, these, these are, they correspond ultimately to beings, beings that are made of knowledge and that are music. And what the shaman uh, does by hanging out with these entities is learn uh, the different melodies that go with different species. And the more ikaros uh, or uh, uh, shamanic song that a, sh a shaman has, it's more like a university professor, the more books she's written, you know, the pow more powerful she is. Uh, so uh, that's where we are with uh, uh, Icaros. And um, the interface, uh, the possible interface, if you take these beings that can be perceived in visual hallucinations or visions, call them what you want, we can't emit visions, but we can emit sound. We can sing. Um, these melodies emit sound. What uh, these entities, I mean, emit sound, and they are made of sound. Uh, what we have in common, the only thing that we have in common with these invisible entities is sound. We can listen hmm. to their melody, and then we can replay it. And they, uh, it seems that they actually like hearing their own melody. Um, you know, so the music, it's not only that it's the essence of the essence of living beings. It's also, it's, it's the common uh, substrate that we have with that invisible level. I love everything you're saying. It just lights me up inside. The essence of the essence. I love this idea of the, the, the beings almost like enjoying hearing the reverberation of their own music. And it just, and, it's so and, poetic. And then th there's just a little bit more. Please. Which is that, uh, all, according to Peter Gao, according to the Piro, and th these are things that I've been able to confirm with um, other indigenous Amazonian people. It's just that Peter Gao wrote it down first and it was so clear. It's that the, so shamans put themselves in the presence of these entities. They pay attention to their, the melodies that they emit. And then they sing along with them to learn the melody. And learning the singing along with them and singing their songs and learning their melodies, they start to see from their point of view. And when you start to see from the point of view of these powerful entities, um, this is both uh, a very uh, a, a, a rich experience in terms of knowledge and therefore in terms of power. It's also dangerous because you start looking at humans from the outside, from the point of view of these powerful entities. You start looking at humans like a jaguar might look at a human. Um, 
this is dangerous. So you the you want the shaman to to go and speak with the level of reality of the indigenous and uh, of the invisible entities because you get knowledge from there. You get knowledge that you wouldn't have otherwise. But the shaman can be transformed by that experience and can come back knowledgeable, powerful, but dangerous. Mm. Uh, and so um, that is, we're not in music as entertainment here. We're in um, music as knowledge and power um, that can also be um, uh, ambiguous. So that's the um, that's what is um, um, behind the whole question of Icaros. Do you have much um, knowledge or experience with the role of music with psilocybin uh, from an anthropological standpoint? No, just from a personal standpoint. Please, I'm mean, curious. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a friend of psilocybin mushrooms, and um, I think it's um, pretty clear that, uh, for example, one thing that uh, one experiences, psilocybin for me is uh, often more auditory than visual. Um, and so it's, it's actually um, uh, inclined to, uh, to, towards sound and being attentive to sound. Um, I think it also um, privileges the human voice. In other words, when you have taken psilocybin, you become aware of the power of your speech, of what comes out of your mouth, of the, the, the sounds. Um, and then obviously, um, the, as with other hallucinogens, the music has a serious impact on um, on the visions, on the experience. And this is also true for in the Amazon. Um, people would not dream of taking ayahuasca and then there being no music, you know, not singing Icaros or not playing an instrument. The, the idea that you would take ayahuasca and then just spend the whole evening in silence um, is not part of their, their culture. Um, and I think that that's also been fairly clear for most people interested in psychedelics. And in fact, psychedelics has, have had a big impact on, on the kinds of music that, that people uh, uh, have made as well. So he, clearly there's, there's something that's, that's going on uh, between music and the, the world of vision. There's another uh, fellow who wrote another interesting book and, and brought up uh, an important uh, point uh, about music and uh, hallucinations. Uh, his name is Benny Shannon, and his book is The Antipodes of the Mind, Charting the Phenomenology of the Ayahuasca Experience. It also sounds fairly academic, but it's a, it's a pretty enjoyable read. And the point he makes about music is that when you are in the uh, hallucinatory uh, realm or experience, everything can be transformed in terms of uh, images, sounds, tastes, all the senses can uh, experience transformation, and more or less anything in the outside world can seem transformed. The only thing that uh, does not uh, uh, cease being itself is music. Music remains uh, recognizable as music. And um, this is perhaps one of the reasons why uh, ayahuasqueros uh, tell people if the visions get too strong, uh, then hang on to the melody. It's like a lifeline. You know, you may be drowning in your visions. Well, concentrate on the melody and just hold on to that melody, and it'll get you out of the the tough spot. Um, and so, so there, I think uh, music may also be uh, central for the reason that it remains fairly constant, unlike most everything else in the hallucinatory realm. Well, thank you so much for that answer, Jeremy. It's been really enjoyable talking to you. Uh, can, where people can connect with your work and the the new book? I, I actually I write books occasionally. I give talks occasionally, but otherwise I, I kind of do my work, and I, I'm not that uh, kind of you know always uh, 
writing down things on Facebook or, or whatever. But it's kind of like a, a an old old school decision. In other words, um, um, you know, talk softly and write books. <laughs> yeah. Well, Plant Teachers, this book is available wherever you do buy books. And uh, it's, you know, as you said, it's an enjoyable read and it's actually relatively short. So it can be read uh, pretty easily. And there's a lot of great information in there. So I really wanted to thank you for sharing your time to, to finally meet you after all these years. Well, East, it was a pleasure talking with you too. And um, I hope we get to talk again. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that rich conversation, and I'd be hopeful that we could do it again sometime. This song that you're hearing in the background is called Laid Down. It is the second single that has been released from The Inn, a soundtrack for the Psychedelic Practitioner Volume 2 album. The full album will be out on October 22nd, wherever you listen to music. And we also have, because it's two hours, the album, you know, it's designed to guide a journey. It doesn't fit on a, on a vinyl very comfortably or anything else. So we have these flash drives. And what's cool about the flash drives that we're selling is it's the high-res version of the album. And we also put on the high-res version of Music for Mushrooms and the Spores album. And then also there's continuous file versions, meaning like instead of it being multiple songs on like in a traditional album, there's a version of each uh, record that is just one track. high-res mp3 for that so pretty cool those are sold over in the store at eastforest.org and uh, along with other vinyl the perfume oils and some garments and things like that well i really appreciate you all listening um thanks community i'm looking forward to seeing folks back out on the road we've got some dates coming up and uh, until then you keep walking your walk don't take any shit but if you do do it with grace (laughs) 